Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. I was talking to this woman who was highly educated. We were part of the same uh, kind of group that was getting together for these philosophy discussions. And um, in the course of this discussion, uh, she made a, a comment. And by the way, she would have claimed to be a Christian. She knew the Bible really well, but did not have a high view of the Bible at all. Okay, so she didn't think of it as, as our, our, we do as the Word of God. Okay, but would have claimed to be a Christian and read the Bible a lot and taught the Bible, but didn't have the same high view of it that we do. There are a lot of people like that, actually. And so, so we're talking, and she says, uh, she kind of raises her hand and says, I want to share that I stopped eating meat recently after reading the story of Noah's flood. She stopped eating meat after reading the story of Noah's flood. And, and I knew this woman well enough, so I thought, well, this would be kind of fun to push on this a little bit. Like, really? You don't believe that that story actually is true, right? She's like, no, 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 I, I don't believe anything like that would have happened. Okay. And the point of the story, if you've read it recently, is actually that you can eat meat. I mean, that's how it ends. God says all the things that moves is food for you. So, so like, that's what the story teaches. Like, oh, but, but you read the story that you don't actually think that hap- happens, and you've taken a point from this story that is actually contrary to what the story is actually teaching you. She's like, yeah, yeah, that's what I've done. Like, well, well, how have you done that? She's like, oh, it's, it's, it's faith. It, it's my faith. I've, I've, this is a, a part of faith for me, is to, to understand the story this way. Like, well, what is that faith rooted in? Oh, it's just, it's my belief. It's, it's what I believe about that story. Like, well, how do you know it's true? Well, it's, it's, it's my faith. At that point, I wanted to pull out that princess bride quote. That, you know, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means, right? But what does faith actually mean? I trust that those of us who are members of the church, we have a higher view of Scripture than my friend did. We believe that the story of the flood actually happened, I trust. But, but I wonder if we can fall prey to that same sort of nebulous view of faith. What does it mean to know something by faith? How is it different, or what does it mean to do something by faith, and how is that actually different than not doing it by faith? Like, what is the actual difference then? What's the difference between faith and just foolishness? A friend of mine once told me about a a firefighter he knew who claimed to be a Christian and who disobeyed the orders that he was given and rushed into a a burning um, uh, house with a bunch of other people, jeopardizing the life of the crew. And he said, well, he did that because he had faith. Is that faith? What about those people who say, well, if you just had enough faith, you would have perfect health and a lot of friends and a whole lot of money and all these other things. Is that faith? If not, why not? What does it mean for us to grow stronger in our faith? When we're growing stronger in our faith, what are we actually doing? Like, like, how do we do that? How do we grow in our faith, right? I mean, that's what Jesus tells us to do, right? Ye of little faith. We've got to grow in our faith, but 
how do we grow in our faith? What does that process actually look at? Look like? Well, my hope is that as we look through Hebrews chapter 11, that the scripture would disciple us a little bit more into some better understanding in these things. So I want to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 today. We're going to go really slowly through this, and we're not going to actually finish the whole chapter. <laughs> a mini-series on one chapter, but only on a few verses in this chapter. So just a heads up there. Um, however, I want to start reading at chapter 10, verse 32, in order for us to get the context. Because especially, you know, context is everything, right? Um, and especially when you're dealing with just a couple of verses, you really, really need the context. So if you look back at chapter uh, 11, verse 32, that's where we'll start, and, um, and we'll see this in, in the context. So here's what the, the author says. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back. We are, those, are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then the passage for today. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. That's the focus here. The verses 1 and 2. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. That's the main point. And I think the main point of that is pretty straightforward. It teaches us, what we'll see in these passages, these verses, teach us what faith is and what it results in. How faith works and what it does. The how and the what of faith. You could kind of summarize it like this. Faith gets God's attention because it looks to the invisible things that God has promised as more real than anything else. That's my summary of these verses. That's not a summary. It's as long as those verses. but um, That's the idea. Faith gets God's attention because it looks to the invisible things that God has promised as more real to us than anything else. We'll, we'll unpack that as we go. But I want to put these verses in their context because that's very important. I read the context. And I want to look at it in its context. And here's why the context is important. Because without the context, you know, he's telling us the, the what and the how of faith. Without the context, we might think that the author here, uh, the, the author of Hebrews, is speaking to us almost like he's a seminary professor, and this is a seminary classroom, right? That's what I do. That's my day job. Um, the, the, the author of Hebrews is like that. Um, 
here, class, let me tell you what faith is. But if we read the context, we'll see that that's not at all what's going on. He isn't a seminary professor lecturing to his classroom. The author here is taking the posture of a coach, giving his team a talking to in the locker room at halftime because they're quite frankly not playing as well as they should be. That's the, the context here. That, that's what you have to think if you're going to understand the meaning of these verses. Don't plug them into a seminary classroom giving you a lecture on the nature of faith. Plug them into, this is the coach bringing some strong words to the team in the midst of a difficult time. That's the context that's going on here, right? So you can imagine that, right? You've either been in that sports team or seen a movie, or you can, you can imagine what that's like. Now, let me tell you why I think that about the context. Look there at verse 36. See what he says there? You have need of endurance, right? So he's telling them what faith is in a context where they need endurance. And why might you need endurance? Well, because you're in something that's really hard, right? I mean, when you're sitting there with your feet up, sipping iced tea, watching a movie, you don't really need endurance. <laughs> when you're in the midst of a difficult time, <laughs> or if you're running a race, or if there's a trial that's extending long, that's when you need endurance. So he's writing to people who are not sitting with their feet up, drinking iced tea, watching a movie. He's writing to people in the midst of a difficult time that is dragging on. You know that, that incremental exhaustion that begins to set in when, okay, we got this for a little while, but this is still going on and on, and, and the trial just doesn't go away? That, that's the context here. He's speaking to them in that sense. And, you know, endurance, you need, an, getting endurance is not about making the pain go away, is it? It's about being able to go through it, right? Imagine a marathon runner. I, I like watching the marathon on the Olympics. Other people in my family don't, but I think just watching them suffer is, you know, I was an endurance athlete. I know what that's like. And there's something, you know, just amazing about it. But, but imagine a marathon runner on, on mile 32 or 22, you know, stops and is like, oh, I need a medic. My legs hurt. Like, well, buddy, you're running a marathon. You know, what did you expect would happen when you did that, right? That's just what happens. And the Christian life is compared to an endurance event. So we shouldn't be like, oh, no, I'm experiencing a trial. You know, obviously, we get help, we get care, we, you know, we do this in the context of a community. I'm not saying just grin and bear it, but I am saying don't be surprised and act like there's something terribly going on wrong when that happens. This is the context in which the author is bringing this to us. You have need of endurance. You're, you're in a trial. That's extending on longer than you would have liked to. You need to go through it. And you need to finish well, right? In an endurance race, just because you did well in the beginning doesn't mean you will do well in the end, right? It's not about how you started, nearly. It's not about some good times you had and partway through. It's about whether you can keep that all the way to the end. And that's what the author of Hebrews is bringing to the people. Look, you've had some good starts. You, you, you had compassion on the prisoners when they were afflicted. Good job, way to go. But don't lose, don't stop that. You have need of endurance because you have to keep doing that over the long haul. You've got to keep doing that well. You can't stop now. 
right? Remember the days when you were first enlightened. That is to say, remember how you ran hard when you first became a Christian. But don't look at your past obedience as a reason to slack off now. Keep going. I had a soccer player tell me that uh, the most, and he played professionally for a team in England, he told me that the most valuable, the most vulnerable time for the team was right after they scored a goal. Because now their guard is down. Now they're thinking, okay, we can relax a little bit when they can't. And the endurance that the author has in view here, specifically, is the endurance of faith. To keep our faith strong, to keep believing, to keep exercising our faith. And that is why he brings up the topic of faith. It's in light of this need for endurance in our faith that he wants to tell them what faith is. He's reminding them about faith, not so that they can know it abstractly, to pass a test on it, but so that they can have it in the moment because they need it for what they're dealing with. But the coach here, we'll call him the coach because that's how he's speaking to us, he's not pessimistic. He's actually very optimistic. He has great confidence in them. Because notice verse 39. See that there? But you are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not going to happen to you. You are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But you are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This would be a great encouragement to them, as it is to us saying you're not going to shrink back and be destroyed. You are going to persevere. But notice how he expresses this confidence. It's very interesting. And if we notice how he expresses this confidence, then we're set up to understand all of chapter 11. All of chapter 11 flows out of the exact way that he has expressed their, his confidence that they actually will persevere. If we miss this, we miss what chapter 11 is doing. He says, you are of those who have faith. He doesn't just say you are a kind of person who has faith. He doesn't say you will have faith. He says you are of those. You are not of those who shrink back, but you are, by implication, of those who persevere and save their souls. What does of those mean? Think about that. It, it means you're part of a group, right? <coughs> He's not just saying, this is what is true of you. He's saying, this is the group that you are part of. See that? See the significance of that? He could have said, I know that you have faith, but he didn't. He said, I know you are of those who have faith. It's a group identity. You are part of this team. On the roster of those having faith, your name shows up. That's what he's saying here. And that's why Hebrews 11 is what he is, what it is. Because now, after saying, look, I know that you are of those who have faith, he says, now I want to tell you who else is on the team. Now I want to tell you what great company you are part of. And that's why he goes in to the whole long list of faithful people he does in chapter 11. It's not to say, hey, look, here's these great people. <laughs> anything like them. It's rather to say the opposite. It's rather to say, here's these great people of faith, and guess what? You are part of the team. You are part of these people. He's giving them 
uh, in Hebrews 11, he's giving them this long list of people who acted greatly by faith to tell them what kind of people they are. And so in light of that, I want to read all the rest of chapter 11. Um, and I want you to receive it as, here is the list of people who are on the same team as you are. Here are your people. You are like them. This is the group you are part of. Okay, so let me read all of chapter 11 with that in mind, starting at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered up to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Friends, this is, you're part of this list, right? These are the people who acted in faith, and you are part of this group, if you're a believer. By faith, Abraham, when he obeyed, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the promised land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are looking for a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they went out, they would have had reason to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God. For he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had, and he who had received the promise was in the very act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He considered, this is amazing faith, he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship at the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had 
grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater reward than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover by the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, before the Egypt, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what shall I say? For time will fail me to speak of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains, in the dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something, listen to this, better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, not only, you know that way that passage ends, not only are you part of this great team, but you are an integral part. For apart from us, they should be, they would not be made perfect. I think the author is getting at the way in which our faith makes a unique contribution because of where we are located in salvation history. We see more clearly Christ. We can behold Christ directly, not just in types and shadows, but in the person of Christ because we know the story. We know the resurrection. We know that he's come and we can know him. And so our faith is necessary to complete their faith. So in light of that, in light of the need to persevere, in light of the need for endurance, and in light of the team on which we are, in light of the fact that we are of those who have faith. Let's briefly now look at verses 1 and 2 and see what we can learn about the nature of faith so that we can live out who we are as part of this team. So, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What is he saying there? Well, we have to recognize he's using a, a linguistic form of parallel structure here, so he's saying the same thing twice. Assurance of things hoped for and convictions of things not seen, it's the same idea. He's just repeating it so that we get the point. Because <laughs> sometimes we need to hear the same thing over again and because it sounds beautiful that way. And the essence of what he's getting at here is that faith, grabs a hold of, for, of, of those things that we hope for and that we can't see and it views them as solid that we can build our lives upon. That's how faith works. That word assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, literally means to hold up under. It's kind of a difficult word to translate. It's sometimes translated substance or sub-essence. The idea is the essence underneath, 
the solid thing, the place where you hit bottom so you can stand there. Right? You're in a pool, it's, you're not very stable until you hit the ground, and then like, oh, I can stand there, right? You hit something solid. It's a conviction, it's something we know for sure. What makes faith faith is that it looks to this, it, it looks at something that we can't see as the solid foundation, right? I mean, we have to realize that the way we go through life normally is that we make decisions about what is certain and what is real based upon what we see, right? I mean, if I'm walking on a trail and I see a, a muddy, swampy area and a rock, what do I do? I, well, if I'm grown up, <laughs> kids may be a different story, right? If I'm a grown up, I usually walk on the rocks, right? Because they're solid, because they're there, because I know I can depend upon them. We make decisions about what we can depend upon and what is real and true based upon what we see. That's how we work. That's how God made us. That's why he's given us senses, so that we can discern what's real and true in our world. That's not wrong. Faith is faith because it looks to something that we can't see, that we can't grasp, that we can't look at, touch, feel, taste, smell, as absolutely solid and worthy of planting our lives upon. That's what faith is. That's how it works. You could put it this way. Faith is resting in the things that we can't see, namely the promises of God. We are resting in the promises of God as entirely sure and as completely solid, even though we can't see them. That comes out in this list of things that people did by faith, right? Abraham was looking to a city that had foundations, right? He's wandering around in the promised land that's not his. God promised him a land. Oh, great. Abraham, he's got this land, except he doesn't have it. <laughs> it's just a promise of land. He's also promised a lot of children. And his name is changed to literally mean father of a great nation. And he has no children. Imagine how he interacts with people. What's your name? Literally, my name is father of a great nation. Oh, right. How many kids do you have? Well, none yet. But Abraham, you're like 100 years old. People don't have kids, then you're that old. Well, well God has promised to me a child. He, he's promised me that I'll be a father of a great nation, right? He, he, you look to the promise as though it is absolutely solid, because it is. That's what faith is. It's looking at the promises of God as real and true and absolutely solid and for sure, even though we can't see them. Let me just mention a few promises that we see in the book of Hebrews to get an idea of what this looks like. Hebrews chapter 9. It says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's a promise for all Christians that Jesus will return, right? He will come back. He has not left us because he abandoned us. He's left us to go prepare a place for us so that where he is there we may always be. And he will come back. All will not go on as it always is. This life will, it won't be going on perpetually as it is now. Something will happen. Jesus will return. The trumpet will sound. Christ will come back. That is real and true even though we can't see it. That's a promise that is absolute. Or think of another promise in Hebrews, chapter 4. When somebody's, usually this is, this is many people's favorite verse. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence where we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. 
we have a promise there that we can come boldly to God for help. That's amazing, right? Because God is holy and we are not. And the principle of self-preservation in all of us would say, yeah, I should kind of run from this guy, even though I'll never actually be successful because he's holy and I'm not. Except he's told us that his wrath has been satisfied in Christ. And so what we have in heaven, as John Calvin puts it, not a righteous judge, but a loving father. And so we approach the throne of grace with confidence that he'll actually give us grace, that we'll be welcomed there. We will not get what we deserve, namely condemnation. We will get grace. That's a promise from God. And we, we wouldn't know that based upon what we see. What we see would tell us we're sinners. We should run from this guy. But the promise says, no, we should draw near and we've trusted in Jesus. God's gracious disposition towards us is absolutely sure in Christ, even if we can't see it. Or consider the promise. Consider this promise. This was exciting to me as I was thinking about this. The promise that we have in the book of Hebrews that a rest remains for the people of God. The promise of entering his rest still stands. I think this refers to the absolute rest that God has intended to have with his people. He offered it to Adam and Eve in the garden, which they rejected. And he offers it again, that there is a rest beyond the tempter's reach. There is a rest where for a permanent communion bond with God that is unending, uninterruptible, perfect, forever. Whereas C.S. Lewis says, everything sad will become untrue. That rest remains for the people of God. I don't know about you, but... I've been thinking about that rest recently. The older I get, I guess I love the life that God has given me, and yet I long for that ultimate rest, right? And if we think of the Christian life as an endurance race, I mean, an endurance race can be a lot of fun, but you eventually stop. (laughs) You don't do an endurance race forever. Eventually, you get to the end, and there is rest. And no matter how much joy we may find in the race, There's the promise of rest to come. And sometimes what gets us through the race is looking forward to the end. And so we have that promise that a rest will remain. And for believers, that promise is real, even though we can't see it. So this is how faith works. Faith trusts in and relies upon and counts as sure those things that God has promised, even though we can't see them. According to the author here, faith is not a static thing. It's not just, oh, I have faith, like, you know, I got dressed this morning and it's done. It's rather, I I encourage it. I fan the flame of faith. I grow in my faith. I become strong in my faith. It's worth noting that the Bible talks about both a passive sense of faith and an active sense of faith. They're related, but we have to distinguish them. Passively, we rest in and rely upon the promises of God for salvation. We trust that Christ died for us and that he alone is the only way we can escape God's wrath and enter into his favor. That's the passive element of faith. It's resting and relying and trusting in Christ. And that's how I enter into a relationship with God. And in that sense, the Bible does speak of of a contrast a conflict even between faith and works. Do I put my faith in my own good works to secure my favor with God? No, you don't, because it won't work. You put your faith in the promises of God. And so by faith, 
you receive eternal life. But then as we begin to live our Christian life, we keep that passive sense of faith. We never get beyond resting and relying upon the promises of God. But then we act based on those promises. And so, for instance, we rest in the promise of God for salvation, that Christ died for us. And then because that promise is so sure and so true, we act based upon that promise, and we speak about Christ to those who don't know him. That's both the active and the passive sense of faith. One person who was a, a professor of mine put it this way. He said, the, the Christian life, faith, is, is resting, in the, resting in Christ and then becoming restless to do his will. Resting in Christ and then becoming restless to do his will. Friends, are you resting in Christ? Are they, you then becoming restless to do his will? Is there that passive sense where you're trusting in those promises, but then because you see those promises are true, do you begin to act on those promises? At the risk of turning something that is ultimately relational into a procedure, let me, let me kind of break this down into steps, okay? It's really more relational than, than a procedure, but nevertheless, I, I think maybe breaking this down into some steps might be helpful. And we're, we're almost done. Um, and I'm, I'm pulling this out of our verses for today, but then also the way we see faith work throughout the verse of chapter 11. So we get that sort of um, how faith works in verses 1 and 2, but then we, we see illustration after illustration of that in the rest of chapter 11. So we're kind of bringing those together to, to get this. Step one, identify the struggle. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to people who are in the midst of conflict and pain. There's a battle going on. Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion. Something has you in its grip, and you're tempted, and you're tempted to give up, and you're tempted to be discouraged. You're tempted to blow it and take the easy way out. What is that in your life? And it's important that we put that struggle in biblical terms. Don't just say, I have a boss at work who's out to get me. Say, I have an evildoer in my life. I have a person who is seeking to cause me harm. The Bible speaks to that. The book of Psalms is a great help here because the Psalms describe the full range of human experience. What, what is it about life that is squeezing you? Where is the need to keep going? What is hard about that, that race? Where does it hurt? Identify that and put it in biblical terms. Number two, meditate on the promises of God that speak to that struggle. Remember what faith does. Faith brings the unseen promises of God into your life so that you act on them as solid realities because they are solid realities. What promises of God speak to you in this trial, in this race? And friends, this takes work. Because, first of all, we have to know the promises of God. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we hear God's word preached. But not only do we have to know the promises, we have to meditate on them for them to have the clarity and richness and, you know, full ceramic surround sounds in order to actually benefit us. It's interesting, when you look at this list in Hebrews 11, the way in which the promises that these biblical 
characters looked at correspond specifically to the trials that they're facing. Did you notice that? So Abraham is wandering around without a home, and he's looking to the city that has foundations, right? The difficulty in Abraham's life is that he was homeless, and he has this promise of an ultimate home, and that's what he looks at. Or Moses, he, he gives up unimaginable wealth in Egypt to, to go bear these people, and these people kind of whined and complained a lot, right? <laughs> to, to bear these people through the wilderness into the promised land, right? I mean, talk about going from this posh, super easy lifestyle to one of the hardest jobs in the entire world, right? Bearing these people. He does it by looking at the greater treasure of being that Christ to those people, that Messiah to these people, than all the wealths of Egypt. Right? So, so see how these biblical characters, whatever trial or temptation that's going on, they're looking to a promise that speaks precisely to that. Or in chapter 10 we read, the people joyfully accepted the loss of their possessions. I mean, can you imagine that? Right? The loss of their possessions. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. I mean, if I got home and I realized that my property had been plundered, and I don't have all that much, but I still would not be like, oh, oh, joy. You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, goody, this is great. There would not be joy, right? And yet these people accepted the plundering of their property joyfully. Why? Because they were looking forward to greater and more abiding possessions. So do you see how the promises have to be tailor-made to fit our situation? We have to, rather, better way to say that is we have to see the promises that already are tailor-made for that situation. We don't make them up. And I think that we go wrong sometimes by, by if we're you know, walking through a trial, there's that pain, there's that squeeze, we spend so much more time thinking about the difficulty than we do the promises. It's like the, the difficulty, well, that, you know, we see that really clearly. That's in full relief. We could write a book about that. We could describe it in detail because we, we you know, rehearse it in our minds over and over again, and we repeat it to other people, right? But the promises, oh, that's just sort of something I see dimly. Yeah, the promises are out there, right? And yeah, I may believe in those promises, but I don't see them in their relief and texture. I don't, I don't understand them and appreciate them in the vivid detail that I need to. So the challenge is, in the midst of a difficulty, are you more aware, are you, more, are you spending more thought time thinking about the trial, or are you thinking more about the promises? Now, we need to think about the trial so that we can act wisely in it, right? Step one is identify it, right? Don't ignore the trial. That's not going to get you anywhere. But spend more time meditating on, soaking yourself in the promises than you do in the trial itself. That's what the author is telling them to do. Step three, rest in the promises, right? That passive sense of faith never goes away. We rest and rely in the promises. And as you do this, meditate on the character of God that makes these promises true. Why can God say in Hebrews chapter 13, I will never leave you and forsake you? How is God able to say that and no human truly ever can? What is it about God that makes him able to promise that and deliver on that? Meditate on that. We see this going on in Hebrews 11. Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. What is Sarah doing? She's meditating there on the faithfulness of God, right? 
Not just knowing the promises, but knowing the character of God who has made those promises. That makes the promises more sure and foundational for our lives because we know that God is the one who has made them. And he will bring to pass what he promises. So meditate on the promises of God. This helps that passive sense of faith. I rest and rely upon him. Step four, act on those promises. The passive sense of faith must give way to the active sense of faith. We rest in the promises, but at some point, we'll be required to act in such a way in our world that we would not act if it wasn't for those promises. We need to act in a way that is consistent with the promises, being true. We need to live in such a way that, as Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we really are, of all men, most to be pitied. And I think this is, this is another place where, where believers, I think, sometimes go wrong here. So if there's two places where I think we, we need a special help here, one is that making the promises, you know, seeing the promises in their full relief and vivid detail. The other is that when we think of how we need to respond and what motivates our obedience, we think only of the commands of God. And we need to think of the commands of God, but we also need to realize the promises that underlie those commands. Each command relies upon a promise, and each promise implies a command. Because every promise says you should act differently in the world because this promise is true. And every command that God has given us relies upon a promise, oh, I will be there for you. Do this because I will be this for you. I will be your God. Every promise relies upon, or every command relies upon the promise, and every promise implies a command. Every promise implies we should act differently because that promise is true. If we don't, well, put it this way, if we try to just obey the command without looking at the promise, we really aren't obeying the command. Because what does it say in verse 5 of chapter 11? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So just obeying the command is not actually pleasing God. There is a way to obey the command and bring no pleasure to God at all. We bring pleasure to God in obedience to the command when we do it out of faith, when we do it looking to the promises. So step four here is to actually live out those promises. Live based upon those promises as being true. So four steps. Identify what's hard. Uh, rest. Sorry. Identify what's hard. Identify the promises. Rest and rely upon those promises. And then live out them as true. And I think it's also helpful to remember the communal aspect of faith here. Right? Remember, we are of those who have faith. We are not people who have faith as an I, but as a we. We are those who have faith. And the author of Hebrews wants to connect that we all the way back to the Old Testament, to all those people who have acted in faith before. But he also, if you read the book of Hebrews, wants to connect that to the, the we of the Christian community. The not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but rather encouraging one another. That's a huge theme in the book of Hebrews. We live out these, this life of faith. We do these steps not individually, but together. We need each other to remind each other of the promises of God. We need each other to encourage one another in those promises, to, to help us see how they are true. I think it's, 
I know at least for me, and I imagine it's for everybody else, I, I can proclaim Christ a whole lot more clearly than I ever actually believe on him in my own heart, right? Because in the inside, it gets mixed up. It's, it's not that clear. I mean, I could proclaim him clearly, nope, but, but inside, it's never that clear in terms of fully resting and relying on him. And that's why I need Christ not just to emerge out of the knowledge I have within. I need Christ to be spoken to me from without. Because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the, the Christ in your brother is always stronger than the Christ in you. Meaning the fact that the way Christ gets proclaimed to you will always be much more clearly and more solidly than if we try to live out Christ based upon our subjective feelings. So that's how faith works. Faith is resting and relying on the promises, bringing them into our lives as things that are true and acting upon them. Very briefly, let's just see what the result is. And we see this in verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Through faith, the people of old are commended by God. This is how we please God. We please God by living in faith because God is pleased when his people trust him. This is what God wants. He doesn't want our raw obedience. He doesn't want us, well, I don't want to do this, but okay, I will because, you know, I don't want to go to hell. That's not what God wants. That's not what delights him. What delights God is when we trust in him and rely upon him and know what is true, that that shows that he is faithful. I mean, how, how um, <coughs> let's imagine that you have a friend who has promised to do some really wonderful things for you. How do you honor that friend? By doubting that they'll really do those things all the time? No, by, by expressing your confidence in them, that they really will come through on their, through on their word. They really will do what they have promised. And so also we honor God by actually taking his promises are true and resting and relying upon them. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, how is your faith doing these things? Is it growing stronger? Are you relying more upon the promises of God? Are you trusting in them greater, in greater ways? Or are you growing weaker? Remember, it's an endurance risk. And just because you started off strong doesn't mean you will continue that way. God is faithful, and he will bring you to the end. But part of the way he brings you to the end is by having people remind you of the need to keep going and grow stronger in your faith. So are you growing stronger in your faith? Are the promises of God more real to you? Are you resting and relying upon them? Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that you would be with us rest and rely upon you. Make your promises seem to us so clear and so real and so vivid. Lord, we're walking through trials, and many of us are walking through things that would feel like the valley of shadow of death, and yet you are there. You're with us. You're with us in those promises. So we pray that we would rely upon those promises as real and true, and through that you would see us through. And Lord, as we partake of your your supper, we pray that that would be a reminder of the promise that you are there with us, that you are in us. As we partake of those elements and they go in us, Lord, let that be a reminder that for those of us who have faith in Christ, you are working in us. We are united to you, and we are members of one another. 
So Lord, we pray that, that this vivid reminder of your promise would cause us to recognize the surety of it and that we can rest and rely upon it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.